You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Parini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we're taking a deep dive into the world of metaphysics and which is like uh, kind of related to science and things that are sort of transcendent, but also things that are, you know, how that relates to the physical world as well and how do we understand those things. So essentially talking about faith and science and particularly kind of the issue of morality and is can science be a, a foundation for morality? We were talking to Dr. Paul Nedeliski, who's an assistant director and fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, and he's co-author with James Davidson Hunter, a book called Science and the Good, The Tragic Quest for the Foundations of Morality. And so Paul, you know, his, his research interests are in these areas of metaphysics and ethics and sort of how do we understand kind of the, the, the elements of reality as and yeah, and how does science help us do that? And then how does science not help us do that? So we had a fascinating conversation. We were joking about is this, we don't want this to be a podcast where you have to sort of take notes. Um, but Paul was very conversational in the way that he was engaging with us, which is good because these conversations are not always easy for me to follow. Yeah, I felt like I was able to understand it. So if I'm able to understand it, then somebody can be multitasking and listen to this Agreed. at the same time. And Paul, yeah, he's, he's so wonderful. You can tell he just has a delightful heart, like looks at the world um, optimistically. And uh, so uh, it was great. We, yeah, we, as Claire mentioned, we talked about morality and the basic question can science be the foundation for morality? Mm-hmm. And can it even, yeah, can it even tell us anything about morality? So, friends, we hope you enjoy a conversation with Paul Nedeliski. Paul, welcome. To the Region College podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're glad to have you. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about? Tell us a little about yourself. We we just heard before we started recording that you cook dinner for your family almost every night. So that's one thing we know. But um, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become interested in the intersection of faith and science? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a kind of a nest of issues that have been intriguing to me for almost my whole life, um, starting probably middle school, high school. I would go in bookstores and see these books about, you know, the science, you know, you know faith versus reason conflicts, mm. which I, I think they used to be more popular than they are now. It's kind of like a classic enlightenment question. Um, and I, you know, growing up as a Christian, uh, the context was often sort of, oh, look, you know, it's, it's a problem for faith when you start thinking about reasons and trying to have like a rational basis for what you believe. And, and you know, the, the core of that is science, like getting proof for what you believe. And so I was always picking up books and curious about it. And, um, you know, decades later, I had a chance to, to work on this project with uh, a friend and colleague, mentor, James Hunter. And um, you know, this project on the science of morality kind of fit right in with this longstanding interest. And I couldn't believe it. I, I thought, this is something I'll be able to work on maybe one day, when and if yeah. I have tenure and I'm 55. And um, <laughs> but the opportunity presented itself before then. So it was. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Kind of so sweet. Yeah, and you've you've written so you've written a book and extensively a little bit on the the intersection of morality and science, and in it you talk about uh, what's called the new moral science or the new moral scientists. Can you just first share with us what is the new moral science or who who are the new moral scientists? Yeah, this is a name that we give to a group of folks who are all kind of doing the same thing. And we say it's new because it's a movement that sort of started maybe like late seventies. So kind of a real quick backstory. Um, human beings have always wanted to know what was right and wrong, good and bad. Uh, anytime a group of people like has more than one viewpoint in it, there's the question of like, well, who's right? How do you figure that out? And you can't do it. Uh, things can get, violent, um, historically speaking. And so there's always been this interest in, well, how can we settle these questions? If there's if there's pluralism, there's the question of like, what do we do about the, the moral disagreement? Mm. And uh, starting in the Enlightenment, there was this new 
kind of confidence that, oh, we, maybe we can use science to answer these questions. Like science is answering all these questions about the world. Why do objects move as they do? What's the nature of you know, the heavens? What can't it explain? Maybe maybe it can answer these like tough questions about religion and morality. And it didn't it didn't work out. And eventually, by the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the quest to, to kind of answer moral questions with science had died out. Um, a lot of reasons for that. We could get into it if you want. But so there was kind of a 60, 70 year period where no one was really pursuing a science of morality. The academics who studied these things either thought morality was, was nonsensical or it wasn't the proper thing to study if you're a scientist. Hmm. But then in the 70s, a couple of folks, um, E.O. Wilson, the, the founder of sociobiology, is probably the main guy. He was saying, well, look, you know, we think about things, including morality, with our brains. And our brain um, operates through you know, chemicals, um, electrical signals. And, and it is the way that it is because of the way that evolutionary pressure shaped it. So it seems like we ought to be able to understand morality by understanding the evolutionary story of the development of the brain. And a lot of people thought that was a great idea. And so uh, that this, uh, this thought about like, well, here's, you know, let's look at the evolutionary story of why the brain is the way it is. Let's pair that with the belief that um, everything we want to know about how we think about morality can be, can be studied empirically, like by doing tests, doing brain scans, um, like add that in there and then add in like maybe one more view about morality, which is just that uh, it's the kind of thing that you can figure out answers for by thinking about consequences. Like what, what would be the best outcome? You don't have to think about rights or duties, just like, well, if we do this, will the outcome be better or worse? You know, just kind mm -hmm. of this utilitarian mindset, put all those together. And this kind of, this became a research program that a number of uh we call them scientists, but they're kind of Renaissance people. Like they, they're a little bit philosophical, a little bit scientific, um, usually kind of straddling psychology and philosophy. And so that that's the new moral science project. And the people who do it, we call the new moral scientists. And maybe the most famous names in that group would be uh, Sam Harris, Joshua Green, Patricia Churchland, Owen Flanagan. Uh, those are some of the bigger, bigger mm. names, I, I would say. Yeah. Is it is it right to say that the kind of rise in neuro like is it like the neuro like neurological kind of discoveries is what sort of sparked it? Is that am I understanding that correctly or not? In the sense that we if we can understand how the brain works and that's what helps us, I don't know. Is that is that right? Yeah, that was not? a big part of it. And it, it yeah. kind of um, added fuel to the fire. So it, right. the, the brain scan stuff, I as I recall, happened a little later than um Wilson's thoughts about sociobiology. Right. Yeah. But it was like, oh, this is gonna make it even easier because now we can use this these, you know, instruments to peer inside the brain and like mm. look at the electrical signals. And everybody was super confident, like, oh, we're going to pretty soon we're going to be able to understand how thought works like like a machine. Mm. And you can, you'll be able to read mm. people's minds by doing brain scans and we'll be able to fix mental disorders like like a mechanic fixes a car. Mm. Um, none of this really happened. Uh, you with a few like slight exceptions. But, yeah, that was a big that kind of gave this program a boost. Mm -hmm. um, and even as it wasn't really telling us about morality, it provided grounds for hope. Like, well, our technology is getting better and better. Our right. brain scans are getting clearer and clearer and more and more detailed. So we're going to have a breakthrough. Mm. Uh, it hasn't come. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Because <laughs> because the brain can't totally be figured out maybe or <laughs> or like. Or even if it, yeah, I mean, I think even if it could, I mean, I there's a there's deep philosophical deeper question questions. here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it, is there, is there a, a non-material component to human beings? Um, yeah, is, yeah. is there a spirit mm -hmm. or a soul? And, um, mm -hmm. you know, if there is science won't be able to study it, presumably mm -hmm. it's not the kind of thing you can measure or detect. So even if they really totally figured out the brain scan, I'd, I mean, that would be an interesting t test if they figured they, if they got, they could like see everything physical about the brain and then all these questions persisted, that might be very, a very helpful outcome, but yeah. It's also just very physically complicated. So yeah, totally. To yeah, totally. Yeah. One of the things I've heard the uh, new moral scientists or new moral scientists use is the phrase moral nihilism. Can you elaborate on what that is? Yeah. Um, this was, you know, sometimes like when you're writing a project, you kind of know what you're going to say, but now you have to say it. Um, <laughs> James and I, we thought we knew what we were going to say in this book. But then we started reading literature and this was a big surprise twist for us because the new moral scientists um, present themselves as 
you know, look, we're going to tell you about the good life and about what's right and wrong through science, which is, again, the gold standard. We, we, in the West, we've wanted that kind of answer if we could get it for so long. But you get into the details and uh, it's kind of buried in footnotes or they'll, they'll say mm -hmm. these things in, in, in lectures. They don't want to, with a few exceptions, they don't want to come out and say in their books. But what you eventually realize is with one exception, all of the new moral scientists uh, don't think that there is such a thing as absolute morality. Like they don't think there, there is an objective like answer to whether actions are right or wrong or whether some things are better or worse than other things. Um, you know, they would say, well, I mean, this comes from their metaphysical view, which in philosophy we call naturalism. Everything in the world uh, has to be describable in like terms that can be measured. And so there's not room for anything else. Morality, if it were real, if, if some things really were good and some things really were evil or some actions really were right and wrong, it's not the kind of thing you could measure. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not like density or mass or, you know, the reflectance properties of light or whatever. Uh, and so, the, the, you know, each of them privately at least has, has, they think that's not a real phenomenon. People talk about things as though they're good and bad, right and wrong. And that's useful because we have to have a way to make a decision and choose one thing rather than another. So let's study that. And we'll try to tell the, tell us the best story we can about what we're really doing when we use moral language and try to make decisions. But there isn't anything there to discover in the way that a lot of people think and would would be assuming when they read their book. So yeah, moral nihilism, that's the name of the view that there really is no objective or absolute morality. There's just people talk using these languages, you know, these terms in a certain way, um, but there's really nothing there to discover. Right. Hmm. And there's, there's, can, can actually science then, we can't actually measure morality. Can, can, does science have anything to say about morality at all then or – like what can, is anything can be measured or like no it's, yeah, yeah good, it's a good a good question because yeah um and the morality is one of these words that means a lot of different things in a yeah. lot of different contexts mm -hmm. and so um in the book you know we we clarify and distinguish different different senses of the term and um when I say like moral nihilists don't think that there is objective uh or or absolute morality or when I say science can't tell us about morality that's the kind of morality I'm talking about like well, what is the right answer? Like, um, right. you know, killing, here's an extreme like philosopher's example, killing someone for fun. Is that okay? You know, I would say, no, you, you can't do it. And there's no, there's no justifying reason you could give that would make it okay. It's just, it's just objectively wrong. Um, the moral nihilists say, you know, that doesn't make sense. And the reason they say that is because you can't, you can't figure out that that's true by doing an experiment or any kind of instrument. I, mm. I, uh, I yeah. would say, you know, human beings are the only instrument, so to speak, that can detect objective morality. Uh, and we it's poorly understood how we're able to do it, but it seems clear that we can because because yeah. it is objectively wrong to kill someone for fun. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, but yeah, there, there's a lot, but there's other, other senses in which science can tell us about morality. Like we talk about like what, what does this culture think is right and wrong? And like, mm. what, do, what do people think is right and wrong? And what do our practices and in our institutions reveal about what we, what we think is right and wrong and in science, social science, psychology, we can, we can study the, these things mm -hmm. because it's about our opinions and assumptions that we make. Mm -hmm. And there's no, there's no claim in these, in these domains, domains to saying like, well, here's the, here's the right answer. Here's the wrong answer. We're just describing things that are happening and the same for like the brain scans, like, you know, you can put people in a, you know, you can scan people's brains while you ask them hard moral questions and see like which parts of the brain light up. Mm. And that's interesting. You, we learn something um, or we can't, it's a new, it's a new science and the field is still, there's a lot mm -hmm. of controversy and debate, but, but you can like, Oh, maybe, maybe like when you think about morality uh, maybe like there's action in the prefrontal cortex or something, you know, right. that's still descriptive. It's connected to morality and science can answer these answer these kinds of questions, but, but it can't get to the bottom of what is right and wrong. And, um, you know, how should we live together and mm -hmm. settling, so it, settling moral yeah. disagreements. In mm -hmm. some sense, it can't be then the foundation for morality. Like it can tell us, it can tell us things, but foundationally it, it's not going to actually tell us what to think about moral issues. That's right. Um, and, we, I mean, 
we we think that's the that's the kind of foundational issue. Just because I, I kind of briefly alluded to this, the context, the like long context for this this question, um, James and I think is the wars of religion. Uh, you know, uh. four hundred years ago, defining kind of the West at this crucial moment. Um, mm. At the time, it was different Christian sects who couldn't get along with each other, and horrible wars that lasted for hundred years or more, and. Um, so many people at the time, thinkers, laypersons, were just exhausted, and and they were desperate for a way to get out of this like sectarian violence and conflict. And at the same time, um, the scientific revolution was taking off, and so unsurprisingly, a lot of people thought maybe science can be the answer. Mm-hmm. And that's been the hope ever since. Mm. You know, sectarian violence is kind of ever present. Uh, who the who the sides are and what the issues are change, but getting along with with people who disagree is still a huge problem. Um, and people keep coming back and thinking, well, maybe science can be the answer, and then it doesn't work mm-hmm. out. And there's like mm-hmm. a forget for, for for a little while. Then, it, oh, what about science? Let's try science. And the cycle keeps repeating. And we, James and I, kind of feel like there just was this another cycle that we just that just crested, and we we're trying to push back, you know, the the tenth iteration or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, sorry, I kind of got yeah. off track. No, well, no good. that's no, good. Helpful. It it reveals though that in in some sense, like religion or faith, seemed to fail. It, it didn't provide the foundation that was necessary for morality. So science almost like, well, can we empirically study this? Are there objectives, truths here that we can actually study and find out? Because faith or, or religion doesn't, doesn't seem to be working foundationally. Yeah. I mean, this is, this, this is one of these things that like is historically a huge factor and has permeated deeply just into, I think, our Western mindset. There's this country song from when I was a kid, and one of the lines is, this guy's talking about what you can't talk about with other people, and he's like, you can't talk about religion because it's hard to know who's right. You know, that just, mm. this is a classic thing, like, you're, if you're chatting at the bus stop, you're probably not going to be like, well, what are your deepest religious beliefs? You know, it's just, it's mm-hmm. a it's a third rail. Um, but yeah, and so that was, it was widely thought, like, well, religion isn't settling this, Um Thanks, Martin Luther. Uh, you know, now that now the church is, you know, disunified. Uh, I'm not casting aspersions. You know, I, I think he made the right mm-hmm. call, but it's just that's <laughs> unfortunate consequence um, mm-hmm. that uh, Christians couldn't get along at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it led to uh, the thought that, well, theology, religion, that's that's not going to unify us mm-hmm. in the moral question. So got to be something else. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like it's this thing where it's kind of like this the prizing of objectivity being what's true. You know, so if it's a you know, if science can objectively tell me this is true, therefore it's true. But if I can't objectively say it, right. therefore I can't as you say, like I can't I don't know if it's right. So therefore if I don't know if it's right, then I don't know if it's true. Do you know like it's this kind of yeah, the objectiveness of yeah. things and that science has, you know, is able to kind of tell us objectively. But does science actually always, I don't know if it does always tell us objectively. Like it's sort of like, well, here's our, here's what this study tells us. Here's what this mm-hmm. study tells us. This one tells us something slightly different. Right. You know, so actually is there objective objectivity in science anyway? Claire, I think it's a great question because I think you're exactly right. Um, I, to me, this is kind of a, a, a simplistic answer. I feel like it's at best it's on a spectrum. Like, I think there are some things that science tells us that it gives us pretty good objective reasons yeah. for thinking is true. I think that science helps us figure out that the solar system is roughly how we think it is and not the way, um, you know, Aristotle thought it was. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's maybe like a good example of success. But then there's so much there's so much gray area. And and this is this is like kind of deep in the philosophy weeds, but I think it's kind of interesting Um if you if you collect data, like you make some like you observe something, you're like here's what we saw. It's an interesting um, fact that there's always more than one way to interpret that. Like mm-hmm. you can't just say here are the facts and so we and here's what we automatically know. Like you have to interpret that that mm-hmm. data and there's multiple options. So how do you decide among those? You can't just go back to the data because you'll just get more interpretive options. And so you're inevitably like doing something like philosophy. It seems to mm-hmm. me. Um, and trying to understand the world. And so this whole like mentality of, well, let's just do an experiment or let's just see what science says and that will settle it. It, it, rare, it rarely is like that. Kind of like you were, you were saying, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of interpretation and yeah. um, it's more complicated. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, along the more philosophical 
route, but also staying in the science vein with morality. Like, you know, you could take John Locke's view in, in my understanding is with morality is he based it on kind of pleasure and pain, kind of the, the behaviors being based on, on a reward system. Um, do you, do you, why, why can't this be the basis for morality like John Locke? So if I like, you know, if I eat cookies every day, I have like that immediate pleasure, but then over time I find out like, oh, this has, uh, health ramifications and it's actually not so pleasurable. So over time, then humanity starts to develop understanding of pleasure and pain based on, you know, the, the sociologist idea of like the, uh, the path of least resistance. So what, what you're going to take. So like, why, I, I don't know, maybe can you poke a hole in this? Like, why can't this be the basis for morality in our understanding? Yeah. I, um, my thought would be, we don't always um, find pleasurable things that are good. I think that's like the mm. briefest way. I, I um, Sometimes, I think maybe most of the time we do. I, I don't know. Actually, at least some of the time we do. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes <laughs> I sometimes I, I, I derive pleasure from taking care of my children. <laughs> Just sometimes. Uh, sometimes, not always. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I think um, if we just do what feels pleasurable, uh, Sometimes that will work out and sometimes it won't, morally speaking. I mm-hmm. the extreme examples which philosophers love are like, what about serial killers? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> they yeah. love killing. Um, and so uh, but you know, those are kind of extreme, but even just in the mundane, um I don't like doing chores. I I I don't find pleasure in doing so many things that I that, w- that w- it would be good for me to do. Uh so I that's yeah. kind of that, that's my first thought. Right. Like, surely. It's, I mean, there's always a deeper question behind these things. It's, it's really interesting. Like there is some connection of some mm-hmm. sort, right? Like um, maybe in the beginning, like, what was like, what was God's plan? Did he try to line up the pleasures with the good? Hmm. I, I don't know. That's an interesting question. He did. He got it. You know, he got it right. At least partially, mm. but it's um, not, I'm not second guessing. Just it's, <laughs> it's not straightforward because uh, maybe the fall scrambled it. Maybe it's, consequences of the fall i am not sure yeah mm-hmm. that's that's really helpful i mean the the pleasure and pain approach doesn't seem to be the solution one of the one of the other people you mention in your book is jeremy betham and he uh bentham and he saw um kind of sympathy as almost like a mechanism in which humanity could be united and to this objective happiness um, so sympathy is like the answer, like, oh, you can sympathize with another human being. You understand what they're going through. Um, and it almost puts you in another person's shoes. Therefore, like that can unite us in our objective happiness. Do you, do you feel like this could be a, uh, an approach to then morality mm. or like foundationally for morality even? Yeah, that's a good question. I, to me, there's kind of two questions here. One is, could it work to get everybody on the same page? You know, that's one question. Like maybe like, I can't remember if it's Bentham or Mill or one of, who, who they gave this, this uh, metaphor of um, our sympathies are like, kind of like vibrating guitar strings that connect everyone. And so mm-hmm. if we tune ourselves right, then we can all like vibrate at the same frequency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, may, if, if their view is right, then maybe that can be a way to, to deal with, with moral disagreement. Um, the second question there is, even if that works, are we getting it right? Like, what if we're all vibrating mm-hmm. at the wrong frequency? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, on the first point, I, you know, historically it hasn't worked. Why is that? This, this could be another book. I, one just kind of brief off the top of my head thought is to a large extent, people, um, develop their their views and their, their sentiments, their feelings about what's right and wrong from their culture, like from the, the, mm-hmm. the system of values that is in their family and in their community that's encoded in the practices of the institutions around them, um, the symbols they interact with. And these are very diverse. And so that is, I think, a huge barrier to everyone, you know, vibrating at the same frequency because, you know, I, you know, I, I tell my kids that, um, polyamory is wrong. And my neighbor tells his kids that polyamory is, is good. And, 
you know, these are the, in the same neighborhood. We have two cultures. And so mm-hmm. there, these are, this prevents, I think everybody from being unified in the way that Bentham was kind of, you know, thinking in a utopian way. Yeah. I don't know. Does yeah. that? No. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. And in, in some sense, if you, if you sympathize, just merely sympathize with another, or understand where they're coming from, it it almost leads to just like a subjective morality of like, oh, whatever, I guess whatever is best for you or whatever is going to bring you most happiness. Uh, and it's it then you have, I guess, conflicting uh, feelings on what what is going to bring like what is actually the good life for somebody? What's actually going to bring true happiness? And uh, and in some sense, you have the culture, I guess, that we have today where every everyone's like, well, you just at least the culture I come from, like you just do what is what is going to be best best for you. I'll do what's going to be best for me. And as long as we don't bump into each other too much, then then that's that's OK. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and that's like morally right. Yeah. Paul, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, like, why does this matter for the life of faith? So, like, how does our understanding kind of of morality and kind of, you know, there's, you know, if, if this one of the things we often you often hear people saying is all truth is God's truth. So it's our understanding of science and morality and how what science can and can't do in terms of our understanding of morality, um, as well as the fact that morality is embedded in systems and religions and cultures and all that kind of stuff. What is what is kind of this? this exploration of these, what does that mean for the life of faith? What does that, what questions does it raise for you? What, what is it, what questions does it answer for you maybe, or any, mm. any more thoughts on that? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I feel like um, this, this project, uh, science, science in the good book. Um, it's, it's this classic case where there are like these big cultural issues and if you keep tracing the roots, you'll get down sometimes to like this a uh, little more like inside baseball academic conversation. You know, like there's mm-hmm. like these yeah. kind of kind of like scholar, scholarly roots. And a lot of the discussion isn't happening at the scholarly roots, but sometimes the scholarly roots wind up ramifying out and, and changing people's minds and it kind of trickles out. And that's that's kind of what I think, you know, it, what the connection would be. Um, I don't. I I never never almost never meet uh, people in the church who are reading the books, you know, reading the yeah. new moral scientists. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the new moral scientists are providing the intellectual justification for a way of seeing the world that is very widespread. Um, this is something that uh, James and I were still grappling with when we finished writing the book. I mean, I I can't. Probably a lot of people say this, but I feel like I feel like I wasn't ready to write this book until after we were done. Yeah, so like you know, <laughs> <do say> <laughs> yeah. it's like then like, I'd write it all I, over again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we did a good job, but I, I think like there's still some things like that we were reaching for, and like we felt like there was something going on, but we hadn't quite figured it out. And one of the things I think is, you know, there's a big um, kind of family of critiques or or understandings of, of just the modern way of life that point to. Uh, this change in the and a basic like a change in basic human orientation to the world, where it, what's unique about modern life is people are constantly looking for how to use their environment um, to manipulate their environment to get what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, this makes it sound bad, but there are good things about it. You know, mm-hmm. like we 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 look at nature um, and we rarely look see it. We rarely like receive it as a beautiful gift. Whereas like an organically living world that we need to understand like the purposes of and learn how to interact with. And so we say like, Oh, look, look at all this timber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, look, yeah. look at these mineral deposits. Um, uh, you know, we, even the term natural resources. Right. When you think about it, like, what, what, what does that say? Like that's the category we use to talk mm-hmm. about nature as resources, like things we can use. Uh, this is like a defining characteristic of, of modern, modern life. And, um, it, I think it creates this like just mode of operation for people where we are constantly seeing the outside world as like tools and things we can use to achieve our ends, sometimes good ends, sometimes bad ends, but just this constant, you know, yeah. utility focus and instrumentalization. And that I think is behind a lot of like the perspective of the new moral scientists. They, they're, they're a part of this kind of, um, 
instrumentalist uh, modern approach to to the world as as so many of us are um, within the church and without. Uh, and one of the goals is if we can understand the brain um, and understand morality, then we can control it, mm. and then we can make we can make ourselves happy. Um, you know, there was a hope maybe twenty years ago it really reached like fever pitch. Oh look, um, we understand a little bit about certain like neurochemicals and what they do for our our subjective feelings. Like oxytocin makes you feel a certain way, and vasopressin makes you feel a certain way. You know these these positive feelings. And for a hot second, some neuroscientists thought we've unlocked it. We can just you know calibrate people's brain chemistry, mm-hmm. and then we'll all be chemically happy, and our wow. our like psychic problems are over. Um, but uh, you know none of this works out as it turns out. You know, even if they found those levers, it would be terrible to do that, mm. um, just connecting us from the world. So I, I think, sorry, there's such a long way to response, but no, to back to your question, I, mm-hmm. th- I think this, the water, the waters that we're all swimming in, um, make us, whether we want to or not, it's constantly refocusing our attention to, to, to see the world in, in like ways that have to do with what, how we can use it. Um, yeah. and that is the driving motivation of this approach to morality also. Yeah. And so uh, that I think is a big connection with, mm-hmm. with the church because we, we live in the West. Um, mm. We're constantly being catechized by our culture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And faith has something, also I was going to say, faith has something different to say about creation. Absolutely. Yeah. Is that why you entitled your book, The Tragic Quest for the Foundations mm. of Morality? No, <laughs> not not what not what I just said. I mean, I think it's in the background. Um, I uh, I think everything that I just said, my co-author knows and already knew. Um, I'm just slower to slower to kind of figure it out. The reason we we said we we subtitled the tragic quest is because we we affirm um, the motivations for the science of morality originally. You know in the context of religious disagreement and violence and, and thinkers and, and political leaders trying to find a way to avoid killing others with whom they disagreed, uh, looking to science to provide an answer, at least initially was an innocent in, and worthy approach. Mm. And so we, we want to say like, this wasn't some kind of like sinister agenda. This was, this was, um, you know, intellectuals and leaders trying to figure out how to solve these problems. And this was a really hmm. commonsensical at the time approach. Yeah. And, and these motivations persist right down to this day. Like we, it's no puzzle why people are, when they first hear the idea of like using science to try to figure out who's right, and who's wrong. Like, like, Oh, whoa, that's a great idea. What, what does science say? It's, yeah. And so we affirm that and we, we just, we're, but then we want to say, but it doesn't work. It's like, mm. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but surely there are like things in life. Oh, well, like sometimes you have a grease fire in your kitchen. Like the first thought is like, I'm going to put water on it. You know, that, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I feel like this, mm-hmm. this is kind of like that. Like mm-hmm. we affirm the motivations of the, of the side, the quest for the science of, of morality. Um, but we want to say, read our book and try something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would and what is the something else then? What like what is this? What is this kind of like sort of critique of science being the foundation of our morality? What does that say about kind of? And you sort of alluded a little bit to what it means for our context, but but also then what does that mean for the for the future? Like what's the try something else that you what that you advocate for? We don't advocate. You don't for want. Yeah. No, no. It's no. this was one of our editor's big big you know concerns. Like, well, what what, what is the answer? Yeah, what's the answer? And. You know, we were like, well, if we knew the answer, we wouldn't be we writing wouldn't, this book. We wouldn't write just book. Like, yeah, raising the here's question. The, yeah. yeah, here's how to solve the, here's how to have a, an open pluralist society um, where we where we aren't totalitarian, but at the same time, everybody can be on the same page and agree. And not only are we agreeing, but we're getting it right. I mean, like, we don't we don't know. Um, no, we don't that know. That sounds like a beautiful utopia. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, and we are, we, we, we feel good with our, our response to our editor. We were like, if there's a path going over a cliff, there's need for someone to put up a sign that says, don't go, you know, don't go down this path. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of <laughs> how yeah. we see our project. But yeah, it'd be, it'd be great if we had like, you know, try this instead. But 
We don't know what that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation. But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them. Share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. Paul, I wonder if you could share if you have thoughts um, on how you think like the new moral scientists or, or, or science, like in general, I, I guess I'm specifically thinking of you were, you kind of even alluded to like the utilitarian, the control aspect maybe there are other ways too in which this has actually impacted the western church in ways maybe known and unknown do you have thoughts mm. on on that i know that's kind of a big question but i'm thinking maybe like specifically maybe the north american church i guess being in in america and canada our context yeah give me a second this is a great question I mean, I think it's, I think it's so subtle. I think um, this like instrumentalizing outlook is so basic to Western society and maybe especially American society that uh, it's like the wheat and the tares. Like you, you can't separate them out. I mean, it's, it's all just so tangled in. Um, I mean, I think I'm, I'm working on this other project now Um try to understand this a little better. And I, I think that part of it is when you have a society where a lot of people disagree with each other, you know, it's, we're pluralist, you know, there's Christians, there's atheists, there's progressives, there's conservatives and so on and so forth. Um, there's supposed to be these deep values that each of these like groups has, but, but they're not shared with other people. And so I think um, there's this continual like dynamic where, it's easier to just stick at the level of shared values. Um, and what, and what, what are the shared values that everybody has in common? Uh, one of the big ones is, is like utility, like the, the means that get you to an end. Maybe you don't share the same objective. You don't have the same ends. You don't have the same fundamental values, but things that help anybody get to their ends, like money or technology or status or even fame and what, you know, big and small ways, these are these are tools that you know, are useful for anyone, mm-hmm. and so I think there's this like constant reframing that happens where this is this is the world we live in. We don't agree on the fun, fundamental stuff, but we all agree. There's like universal currency on utility and 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 like these certain kinds of like cultural tools, and we helplessly come to place I think too high a value on those things. And so mm-hmm. in the church, I I see. Um, it's like sometimes it can feel like a microcosm of Hollywood, like there are celebrity pastors, uh, you know, e- even within like mm. conservative denominations, the same phenomenon happens. Like it's not, they're not, you know, they don't have a million Twitter followers or whatever, but they'll have 10,000 within their own sphere. And the same dynamics are repeating where, you know, well, do they, if you asked these people, leaders in the church, like, do you think fame is fame? One of your biggest, biggest uh, values? Well, no. But they live in a culture where it has yeah. so much currency, it's so hard to resist. And so mm. that's just one kind of mm-hmm. way of trying to articulate it. Like, 
the tool, you know, fame is a tool, even for good ends, um, it has a huge amount of value in a plural society. And so it creeps in and, mm-hmm. and I think distorts. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's a really, I mean, yeah. do you, do you feel it? Do, you, do either of you feel like you see other ways like this kind of um, hmm. instrumentalized approach to, to the world seeps in? Yeah. I mean, Paul, you are the first person <laughs> I think that has flipped a question on us. I don't think I've ever had that. Have you had that, Claire? Uh, occasionally. Whoa. You know, Con- you know Connolly. Something new Gillum, for me. She, I think she flipped one okay. back on me at one point. Oh. Uh, Maybe I'm but breaking that might the rules. Be, I don't know. No, no, <laughs> break the rule. No, rules are meant to be it broken. Is there is no. To be what, a is, what is this? There is no right or wrong here, Paul. Whatever. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> what are you think, Nick? Oh, I love it. Um, I, I yeah, your your perspective on specifically control um, has me thinking a lot about my own faith walk and then how to live out that faith in in the body of believers i think i think control is a good um is is almost like a good lens to view it through in like different situations approaching church ministry in general approaching uh any type of gathering is obviously you want to have you have an agenda but I think, yeah, I think that that when when we approach faith as like trying to control God, trying to control an outcome, um, yeah, there's there's probably a lot deeper things there that uh, maybe maybe why we have a lot of the mental health issues that we have today, like with anxiety and even depression, not being able to control things. And obviously there's a whole slew of things, Mm -hmm. but that's one thing. The other thing that I think of is more utilitarian. And I think very practically actually um, with communion and how we we do the the Eucharist. I'm just thinking very practically Mm -hmm. in my church context, it has become more efficient rather than um, taking maybe an inefficient approach. I'm just, I'm honestly thinking in, in, in practical ways. So I think when we approach church ministry specifically in, in an efficient lens, I, that's maybe also uh, a red flag for me as well. So control and efficiency, not mm. completely bad things, but two things that maybe we should, we should think about when we uh, live out our, our faith. Mm-hmm. I, that's such a that's so great, Nick. I, I I totally agree with both of those. Um, I uh, another one of my mentors once said to me and to several other people, um, the conversation was like, "Oh, the world is so disenchanted in modernity. How do we reenchant it?" And he was like, "One of the best ways to reenchant the world is through hospitality." Mm-hmm. And I was like, at the time, mm-hmm. I was like, "What are you talking about? Like, this is a metaphysics discussion about mm-hmm. how, like, you know, you know, is there like." transcendent spooky you know magical stuff in the world and it took me years to understand what he meant and i yeah i think what he was getting at was striking to the root of, of the same thing you're bringing mm. up nick like what he meant was we don't have room for hospitality anymore you know we mm-hmm. maybe we can like schedule like having some friends over for dinner three weeks from now for an hour mm-hmm. and a half time block but you know just no one feels like they have the time or, mm. that's an extreme statement. We often don't feel that we have the time just to, to be with other people mm. to say like, Oh, come by the house. And if they mm. drop by, I mean, I'll put it this way. Like if my friends dropped by my house and announced most of the time I would be irritated. Yeah. Mm. How terrible is that? That is, yeah. that is just awful, but that's the world we live in. Like, mm. Oh, why did we didn't schedule this? Oh, mm-hmm. it's so gross. Yeah. Um, Cause we, we, I mean, it shows you where our values are. Yeah. I agree with, the communion yeah. point too. I mean, it's supposed to be the Lord's Supper, really? Yeah. A wafer and a shot of grape juice, mm. like in, in five a plastic minutes? thing, yeah, in a plastic in a shot glass. Thing? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like what, what has happened to us? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking the only other thing I thought of, and it's sort of I think it relates, is the kind of the utilitarianness of kind of relationships in general. So there is the sort of there's the celebrity, you know, thing like you're saying, Paul earlier, and the. But that that thing of like um, 
and Christians do it as well as everybody else. The, 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 like, what what is this person going to help me get? Like, are they going to help me be more spiritually rich, mm. or are they going to help me worship yeah. better, or are they going to help me? You know, so or is this person make me? You know, in an extreme sense, going to make me look good because it's cool to hang out with them. That's maybe less yes. of a real core motivation in in normal life, but yeah, but that the utilitarian of of relationships yeah. for what then I can like what they will do for me um, mm-hmm. and, you know, and friendships as well and being friends with people that are easy to be friends with, you know, because that's, you know, less of an inconvenience and, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. That was my that was my only kind of – and the creation piece is another obvious one I think. But, yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a great point. I mean, like we as a society right now, at least like in my demographic, we have a hard time spending time with our best friends, like the mm-hmm. people that we we like being with let alone, yeah. you know, the least of these, like mm-hmm. who, I, I just, we're, we're so, when you look at it from this perspective, I just feel like we as the church are so far from where we need to be. And there are exceptions. There are people who are pushing back against this. Don't get me wrong, but I just mm-hmm. feel like I, you know, I'm not doing a great job. And I feel mm-hmm. like in general, um, mm-hmm. who, who shows up at like a social gathering and looks for the outcast mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. tries to befriend them. Like mm-hmm. that is just an alien thought. Um, that was Jesus's, you yeah. know, modus operandi. Yeah. Uh, oh, but, so you know, good, Paul. Yeah. Paul, I have one more question for you. And it's a simple question, but it may not be so simple. I don't know. Uh, it might be a simple what, question. It may not be a simple answer. Yeah. Yeah. There <laughs> it is. That, that's right. What What brings you hope? I um. I've never been asked that. I've never thought about this. Um, <laughs> so this is totally off the cuff. Yeah, that's all right. You asked us questions and we were off the cuff too, so you're good. <laughs> fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. I, I I don't feel pe- – I don't feel very pessimistic. I mean, I think <laughs> I think things are quite bad, but I guess I, guess I think um, uh, human beings were never going to fix, fix our own problems by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, there are people who study this and I'm, I'm, you know, officially and they read books about it and write it about it. I'm not one of those people, but I, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I think, um, we're going to need divine help in the, in the meantime, um, things can be better and worse and there's good work for us to do. I, I think there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of people, uh, who, who are precious and, and beautiful and flawed and sinful, but, um, you know, worthy of redemption. They need friends. Mm-hmm. I need friends. There's so, there's so much, I guess put it this way. The world is a, a broken, but beautiful place. And, uh, the brokenness hasn't totally erased the beauty mm-hmm. and the goodness. And there's a lot of good work for us to do. And, uh, that I think is, is very, very fulfilling. Um, and it's, it's good, even if it, when it's not fulfilling and ultimately, uh, a great deal of it survives, I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, at the, at the restoration of all things. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that makes it hard to be finally pessimistic. Um, mm-hmm. both because we know the end is, is worth hoping for and waiting for, but also in the meantime, um, there are so many wonderful people to know what to know and help and to receive their love in return. And, mm. and the world is also just like God's creation is an endlessly fascinating place. I just, mm-hmm. you could, you know, we're, it's a good thing we're going to live forever because it's going to take longer than that to, to, to really enjoy its delights. Yeah. Mm. Oh, wow. Paul, so good for someone who's never been asked that question. What a great answer. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Well, no, and it makes me think about what you're even saying from the beginning as well. That we're not, we're not, we we are human and material, but we're not, we're not only human and material. So mm-hmm. those things that you're talking about are all mm-hmm. there's the intangibleness of of relationships and of love exchanged and of you know and redemption is tangible and intangible. You know, in you know, it's it's physical and it's metaphysical. So yeah, it just kind of takes us back to that thing that actually we're not ultimately yeah. just, and we're not just only physical yeah. but there is something deeper that can't always be measured yeah can be seen but right. not always measured empirically and you know 
all of and that, that as well. As a last comment, like, and that that other stuff you're talking about, I mean, it, that is, I would argue, that is uh, the reason for which the material stuff exists. Yeah. We so often get it backwards. I mean, yeah. it's, um, we assume like the most fundamental stuff are, is like whatever the smallest pieces of matter are. Well, no, those little pieces of matter are the way they are, or the little strings or particles or whatever they're saying it is today. Like the, those fun, those little pieces are the way they are to support uh, the telos mm-hmm. uh, of human beings and, and the stuff that we observe about humans around us. Like the, the little physical stuff is that way in support of the, the beautiful qualities and the purposes for human beings that we can perceive um, mm-hmm. whether it's empirical or not. So it's, we so often think like there's this intangible residue. And I think I feel that way too, but I think the better, better picture is that's the point of it all. Everything else was reverse engineered mm-hmm. to, su- to support these, these, um, these wonderful creatures. Mm. Paul, so good to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Thanks so thanks, much. For thanks your for time. inviting me on. I, yeah. I, yeah. I really appreciated it. We've had a great conversation and hopefully someone's listened to this, you know, cooking dinner or something and it's all made sense to them. That was our, that was our goal. That was our hope. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully they didn't have to take any notes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> or just go back and, you know, the old like reverse 15 that's seconds, right. 30 15 seconds, seconds, you yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> Hang on. What did he say? Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, Paul. So great to be with you and appreciate you kind of, yeah, helping us grapple something that can be kind of hard to understand well, at times. You're yeah. so generous. Thanks thanks for Appreciate asking it. all these questions. It was great. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.